you are somebody who's been called the most interesting man in the world. I am a radical optimist. I actually acknowledge that there's huge problems and there will be even bigger problems in the future. But I'm optimistic because I believe that our capacity to solve problems increases even faster. There is this whole culture of doomers about technology is not great for you. The price that we pay for these technologies are worth it for the benefits that we get. There's no evidence of mass unemployment because of AI. It's all an imaginary speculation. If you could airdrop some piece of technology to everybody, what what would you do? What advice do you have? Time is the wealth. It's not money. It's don't aim to be the best. Aim to be the only. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting episode of the Arthi and Sriram show uh, with Arthi and myself, Sriram. And we, as you folks know, the core idea of the show is we focus on optimism and people who embody optimism and amazing work around uh, just kind of having a positive impact on the world. And we have an amazing guest for you here uh, today, somebody we've been a fan of for a long time. But before I get into him, you know, a lot of people ask how you can support the show. One great way, if you're watching this, hit subscribe, hit follow, turn on the notifications, pop up the flag, send up a smoke signal, whatever your platform of choice, you know, uh, just follow us there, leave a comment and leave a review or, you know, send us a DM or send us a letter. Uh, we, you know, we'll take uh, any of it. But without any further ado, this person that we have here today has been somebody who's been a true idol of ours for a very, very long time. Even before we knew of him, his work has had a foundational, formational impact on so much of what we do and so much of, I'm sure, uh, the listeners as well. So yeah. we have the one and only Kevin Kelly. And Kevin is kind of a really hard person to do an introduction for you, Kevin. I'm sorry. like You make my life so hard because you are somebody, and I'm going to start listening out some things. You're somebody who's been called the most interesting man uh, in the world, you may be one of the most traveled people uh, in Asia, uh, if not all over. You were the founding executive editor of Wired, which has had an impact on all of us and um, pretty much anyone in technology you know, owes some thanks to it. You're a writer, you're a photographer, you once tried to document every species of life on the planet. There's so much more we're going to get into. Yeah. But mostly I want to say you're a published author and in particular we're going to get into this which is uh, Kevin's book on excellent advice for living. Um, Kevin, not ask me, says, but I'm saying this, you have to go out and buy a copy um, because as somebody who just turned 40, uh, you know, there's so much in there, which I'm like, okay, I know some of this, but so much of it I wish I knew before and I'm looking for learning some of this. It is great. We're going to get into this as well. Um, Kevin, it's a true honor to have you on the show. What a delight. Thank you for your very generous introduction and I hope to live up to it. I would add one thing that may be pertinent to your listeners. And that is is that I am a radical optimist. I, I am yes, so optimistic. I and I am more optimistic today than I was even last year. Oh, That is amazing. So, uh, Kevin, like I was actually going to go add in an optimist, uh, conservationist, uh, student of uh, Asian culture. There were like a bunch of other fields that we left out. Um yeah, this is you know. I'm actually nervous talking to you because this has kind of been a bucket list interview for us. We've been wanting to center yourself. Yeah. Um, we I was one of the early Kickstarter, um, you know, um, people who just like who had bought the book, who had pre-ordered the book on Vanishing Asia, and uh, flipped through it as soon as the three volumes showed up at my house. It's still there, and uh, you know, it's it's one of these like wonderful. If, if people didn't know better, it's like a great coffee table book. But for folks who know and have been through a lot of these countries and yeah. different cultures, it's just such a delight because some of those and you've like, uh, and we'll come to the book later. Yeah. But to me, you know, I wanted to touch on what you'd said, uh, which is optimism. And especially right now in this moment, and, you know, Shriram and I, we work in technology. There is this whole culture of uh, this doomer culture of mm. being... Uh, just doomers about future, about how, you know, technology is not great for you, is not great for the future. In this world, uh, what makes you optimistic? What are you yeah. optimistic about? Why do you feel optimistic? It's a really great question because um, there is a sense in which pessimists sound smarter, mm -hmm. but in fact, they're not realists because 
if you if you if you have a sense any sense of history, if you look right. back any distance, you can see progress. If you are really being fair about and academic and scientific and rational about what's happened, is that there's absolutely no other interpretation that we have that we're living better lives today than we were in the past mm-hmm. and almost the past any any point, including even ten years ago. And so, um, so so th- so that's one thing that makes me optimistic is being interested in history mm-hmm. and, and and paying attention to history. The second thing is um, understanding that um, I'm optimistic not because I ha- I diminish the, the 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 problems we have today, mm-hmm. not because I, I I deny them. No, I I actually acknowledge that there's huge problems and there will be even bigger problems in the future. But I'm optimistic because I believe that our capacity to solve problems increases even faster. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So, 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 so it's not that that, uh, that I don't think we have problems. It's that I think that our ability to make solutions continues to increase even faster mm-hmm. than the problems. And so, in a certain sense, I'm trusting the future in that way. And um, and and um, the third thing that I think ways that you can become more optimistic. Besides taking a longer view about the past and the future, the longer view you have, the more optimistic you can become. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that that, that that is a trick, is a is a is a method, is to understand that news of any kind from the best source is is only going to be generally negative news. Because there's a higher probability that things will will break, will be bad. Yeah. The good takes a long time. The fast happens very, very fast. Things explode, things collapse. That those are those are really fast action. So if you asked what has happened in the last five minutes, it's going to be basically bad news. Mm-hmm. If you say good news takes a century to 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 work. Mm-hmm. And so again, if you change your 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 distance, if you change the horizon to the long term, then that enables you to be optimistic because most of the things that happen in the last five minutes are going to be bad news. Um, I want to unpack this a bit because, uh, by the way, throughout this episode, I'm going to be stealing quotes from you um, and uh, and which is, you know, I hope access motivation for people to go read your work or buy the book. And one of the things I think you've said is you can't reason people out of a position yeah. that you can't re- that they didn't reason themselves into, which I think has a lot of connections to mood affiliation, a lot of other things. But if you had to sort of bottle up the optimism that you have and inject uh-huh. it into somebody else, what have you found are the most effective ways to do so? And what are maybe some ways that just don't work? Yeah, so, so, so again, um, as you said, uh, we have absorbed so much uh, about our attitudes about things, including the future, mm-hmm. from emotional patterns, from movies. And most Hollywood movies are dystopian because they make better stories. Mm-hmm. The people who make movies have gotten really good at making stories, and they understand that a dystopian background is going to make a much better story, and that a, a world in which everything, in which things are working in the future isn't as interesting as a story. So um, so we, ha- we, we pick up these, these emotional cues and things about our politics, about our, our assumptions that, that, we, that we don't usually inspect or challenge, and that's, that's what's hard. So part of, I think, one way to become an optimist is, is to get better at changing your mind. Yeah. Being able to change your mind easier, I think, will help your optimism. Uh, second thing was was I think I'm spending time with young people as much as possible. Right. Have you know with your own kids, your kids' friends, um, students, uh, interns, whatever it is. Spend as much time with young because um, you it's easier to trust the future that way. Um, uh, yeah. I love that because I want to you know for a lot of young people watching, um, the story of your life reads like some 17th, 18th century adventure already. You go look at them on Wikipedia and they've kind of like <laughs> done these amazing things. But that's what your story is. And 
before we started recording, uh, you challenged us or you said, hey, can we find questions to ask you that haven't been asked before? And it's hard uh, uh, because it was amazing to interview you. But I thought one interesting place to start because you had such a broad, amazing range of output is I believe that you might have created the first ever music video, maybe yeah. many, many years before MTV. Yeah. Could you talk about yeah, how that happened? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in the fifties and sixties and went to high school in the sixties. And, um, um, I was interested, I became interested kind of in photography in my, in high school, which was not a cool thing at the time, because in order to do photography back then you had to do chemistry and you needed to know optics. Everything was manual to make, uh, for photographs, you had to develop the film. You had to print the film in chemistry. Um, it was very, very, very technical. And doing it, you were it was kind of an oddball thing um, to be involved in it. But for me, it was an interesting convergence of my interest in technology and my interest in art. And there was this new thing, photography, which was a combination of both of those. Um, I was really interested in, in wanting to make um, movies and videos. But it was so unbelievably expensive to do it. Um, and it wasn't just even the camera. It was the fact that you had to process or have color film. You Nobody could do it themselves. It had to be sent mm -hmm. to Rochester, New York to be right. processed and then sent back. And it was very expensive. But I did get hold of a used 8-millimeter camera, and I was putting some film through it, and you literally had to cut and paste mm -hmm. film. That's where the cut and paste comes from, where you're cutting film and then you're gluing it back. That's how you edit it, analog. It was very, very laborious, very expensive, but I did manage to, to spend a couple of rolls of films, and I, we had a band in high school that didn't play music. We did all the stuff that bands did except play music. We had T-shirts. We had fans, we had, um, you know, just, we had groupies, but we didn't have any music. That's important, that's important. Like, it's part of the package deal. We had a, we had a, we had a newsletter that I wrote the newsletter. And um, anyway, so I did a little, um, I did a little film about our band. We didn't play music. We just did ice and, and, and community service stuff. Um, and I mixed up black and white and color and had a soundtrack that was from the Almond Brothers. Um, it wasn't our music. So um, it was It was sort of, if you watch it now, it's. it looks very avant-garde, but that was because I, I didn't know what I was doing and um, there was nothing to, to guide me um, and it was just a fun thing. We're, we're, we weren't really trying to do anything. So it was a happenstance. It was just an early 1969 kind of fun thing that now is sort of what you do if you have um, a band and music track and within and probably an instagram account now yeah exactly <laughs> uh you know this actually ties in something which i think is so interesting about you which is you know across sort of this amazing body of work across many decades there are two themes which pop up one is you're so prolific right a magazine editor travel photography but then you also have a, you bring together the technology side and the creative side. And I believe you try and work on something creative every single day. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about just the habit and the practice of that. What do you do? Yeah, yeah. Why is it important to you? How do you think it helps you? Yeah, I, I, I do. I'm, I'm making another piece of art um, recently for my studio. I have a studio where I can do art and Making making things has been something I did as a kid. I made train sets. I made a uh, a nature museum when I was twelve. I found this book at the library about how to make a nature museum, and I decided I need a nature museum in my basement. And making the exhibit, making the plaster cache of the animal tracks. I made a demonstration of how wings work with motors. I had um, you know butterflies mounted and stuff, and. Um, I made the chemistry lab. I liked the physical thing of doing things, and that was just um, just my interest. And 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 
that was one of the reasons why I eventually worked at the Whole Earth Catalog and went on to edit the Whole Earth Catalog because it was this convergence of not just the, the technical and access to tools, but there was this idea of inventing, of, of inventing your life, of, of, of making things happen, of creating. And those words weren't stressed in the Whole Earth Catalog, which was this influential um, pre-internet information source. Um, in the seventies and, and, and eighties, um, but it was it was very instrumental to me that 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 the invention and the creativity was not just technical but also socially social right. innovations. It was personal in your own the way you invent your own life, the way that you can kind of um, be self directed. So all those kinds of things to me converge, and, and even when we did Wired, it was a very visual. It was a very visual publication. That was one of the the parts of his brilliance was that it wasn't just words on the text. We kind of played with the fact that color was now almost free. Yeah. Uh, for when I was growing up earlier until then, color was always more expensive to do than blacks and white. And we decided when you have a monitor, color is free. So what could we do with if we assumed that color was free for print? And so... Um, we were kind of anticipating this idea that now we now there's like, you know, color, black and white's more expensive in some ways, yeah. and so and so we sort of like color's going to be abundant. What can you do with abundant color? And mm-hmm. so um, for me, th- that's always been an interest. And and if Wired could be summarized in any way, it's not that it was a technology magazine; it was a magazine about the culture of mm-hmm. technology. Yeah. And I kind of live there with this overlap of 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 the art and the personal and the social and the technology i i, I don't think they're separate yeah. you talked about being a photographer and picking up photography you know when it was really expensive cumbersome um talk to us about vanishing asia yeah. the project it's uh, you know this is a whole corpus of work that's a 50 year old project yeah um across many countries through Asia, many small towns, like even people living in these countries probably wouldn't have like visited them, especially during the times of these big festivals. Um, Some of these, you know, these cultures have basically vanished, right? Like you no longer have these festivals in some of these towns. Um, And so yours is basically the last corpus of work that covers this over a period of time. Yeah. How did you come up with it? Was this just, you know, I'm just going to keep doing this and at some point it's going to be, where are you prescient enough to be like, well, I'm going to publish a book, <laughs> yeah. series, or what was in your mind yeah. all this time? And why did you put this together as a book? How was it in sense? Everything about the book. So, so, so I, I have great difficulty explaining to my, I have three kids, to my kids the parochial nature of growing up in America. I grew up in New Jersey yeah. in the 60s. I, before I graduated from high school, I think I eat, had eaten out at a restaurant four times. I'd never had Chinese food. I'd never eaten Indian food. I'd never had anything spicy in my life. Um, there were no, it was white mostly and some blacks, but 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 it was incredibly isolated from the cosmopolitan world that we have today. And um, through an accident of my interest in wanting to photograph, I was invited by my high school best friend who was studying Chinese in Taiwan because he wanted to be a missionary to visit him. And I thought I could go take some photographs and I I called up National Geographic before I left. And I said, hey, I'm going to Taiwan and Japan do you need any photographs? And they said, you know, that's not how it works here. <laughs> but when you come back, show me, show me your work. Yeah. It was that was so powerful. But I was setting off to photograph. I had no idea of what I was getting into. I was a college dropout, and it turned out that landing in Hong Kong and then on the way to Taiwan and then all the way to Japan, it was unbelievably eye-opening just to, 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 to see 
this otherness, this other culture alien from us, the richness of it, and then in addition to places like Taiwan, Japan, this is where all the things being made in America were being made. And and and, and I would see them being made in the open in these kind of um, family garages and stuff where they were actually manufacturing all the stuff that, that and so there was this kind of an X-ray vision of of the world. And and there and there was a you know there was a different sense of privacy, so things were much more public, much more out there and communal. Mm-hmm. And um, I, people's sense of privacy were different. I could kind of walk into a farm or, or even a farmhouse, and people might be surprised I'm there, but they weren't offended. They were they were welcoming, and that that ability to kind of get inside and see the world in a different way was addictive to me because it was like every day I am having my mind changed. Every day I'm learning something new. And so um, I just kept going. And it was at a very special moment in the world where um, you could, uh, someone like me who had very, very little money, I mean, I was living on a couple thousand dollars a year. I was traveling on a couple thousand dollars a year. Um, Someone like me who had very little money could get to some very remote places without having to have a big expedition just by taking hiring a jeep or something or even a bus and getting some to very remote places that had not yet changed that were still living in medieval times mm-hmm. and that time machine was unbelievably powerful and i was trying to document this because it could see i could see it was disappearing <laughs> and so i i didn't know what i was doing with it i wasn't trying to make a book i was just trying to capture this unbelievable richness and alternative ways of doing things and the costuming and the architecture and the festivals which made sense at that time but increasingly were not going to make sense and i was not nostalgic for them i I understood why they were being replaced but i did want to capture it before they were gone um i wasn't trying to save them from going mm -hmm. i just wanted to capture it before they were gone because i think those old ways can still serve as inspiration as idea banks uh, suggestions about what you might want to do, even though we don't going to replicate them, mm-hmm. and so that idea of like there's this all there's a whole bunch of alternative ways of doing things, and as you're making something new, you may want to consider some of those old ways because they may have some ideas for you today. Uh, I think if I if I'm correct, was this the time? I think this was the time when you found this remote village. If I remember, it might be in Afghanistan, which was pretty much unchanged from the uh, yeah. 17th, 18th century, and Kind of paint a picture for me because I'm in my head thinking, you know, 20, 20, you know, mid 20s, Kevin Kelly with a backpack, right? Like you can get on a plane, come back to the good old USA, but then you get on this probably rickety bus and you're like, I'm going to see what's down there. So, one, I want to kind of hear you tell sort of the experience, but also like, what is going on in your mind at that moment? Be like, I want to go down there. And this is the age of, no Instagram, no Wikipedia, so you don't actually know what's going to go down. So you don't. That's the important thing. You have no idea. Like, in, in, I was on a bus in Afghanistan, and I would literally, I didn't even know if the road kept going or not. I didn't even know if it was a road. There were certainly no hotels there. We were staying at government little um, governments who often had guest houses and things where the government officials could stay, and. I literally didn't know if this road would keep going or where it would go to. There was I, I barely had I had a big country map, no no idea of of villages names, <laughs> and uh, I took I was going there to discover to see if there was something that would be amazing, and usually there was not. Yeah, and I wasted a huge amount of time going to places where there wasn't anything special. Um, nowadays, you have books that will tell you well you know if you're going to have a limited amount of time go to here but we didn't have that so so i saw a lot of i wouldn't say boring things but i saw a lot of things that were unexceptional on the way to find but but then i would i would see something it was something nobody had ever seen before or at least i didn't even know about and so the, the 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 genius for me the beauty of this was that um it was a time machine and yeah. in, in the case of Afghanistan or even the Philippines or parts of India at the time, like in Rajasthan, way, way out, way beyond Jaisalmer, up, you know, beyond Bikaneer, just they were living in um, 
in, in conditions in a style that was medieval, meaning that really had not changed in thousands of years. Places in Afghanistan, they had entire towns without electricity. I mean, without electricity. So they would they would have the evenings, they would go up and light the kerosene lamps in the streets. They had kerosene lamps. <clears throat> you know, they had camels and donkeys instead of vehicles. They, um, they were medieval, medieval child brides, man, you know, servants, basically almost like slaves. It was, it was medieval in every way, no plumbing. And so, um, I got to experience what it's like without technology, mm. what it's like without the modern institutions. And that's another reason mm. why I'm so optimistic is because I've seen, I've lived in that world mm -hmm. and I know what it is, and I understand the problems that it brings. I understand the problems that social media has, but I, but it's obvious what the benefits are at the same time yeah. because I've seen the world without plumbing. I've seen the world without electricity. I've seen the world without yeah. individual transportation. And so it changes, it changes your view. At least it changed my view to make me much more appreciative of the, the price that we pay for these technologies are worth it for the benefits yeah. that we get. I think for us, uh, in a way, this is also what makes us optimistic, I guess. You know, for us, for both Sriram and me, technology gave us a lot. It gave us like our entire existence today right. as we see it. We, uh, I remember my parents to this day talk about growing up in villages uh, without electricity, without, you know, like yep. portable water that you have to like, you have to like pump it out. Um, no internet like even i would go visit the village as a kid and there was no concept of internet um we only got internet in our like 10th grade or 11th grade or something yeah, it wasn't yeah. even uh, it wasn't even the norm growing up and so for us uh and also our my first ever leaving the country in leaving india experience was to pack my bags and move to seattle to work at microsoft yeah and when i did that you know my entire understanding of america was all from TV shows. Yeah, of course. Was from movies, that kind of thing. And so when I came in, to for me, they, I had the same experience as yo yours, but the reverse, where I go into Seattle, I look at these national parks and just nature and wilderness, and I'm blown away. And I'm like, I'm not taking this for granted because the first ever national park I went to was the Olympic National Park. Yeah. And it is just incredibly beautiful. I'd never seen anything of that sort. Yeah. And so to me, similar to yours, I pulled up my camera and I started taking all these photos because it was like, I don't know what's going to happen because how could this place just be like this and no one's talking about it yeah. kind of thing. So to me, that makes me feel like that is also one of the reasons why I'm so optimistic because I've kind of seen what it takes to yeah. grow up and grow through technology advances and and literally make a living because we are in technology building yeah, tech, yeah. and uh, yeah. it's hard to just take it for granted. Yeah, and 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 uh, you know, I have to be clear that that, that these that this kind of medievalness what, what has, has passed, it's gone. It's 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 no longer there. There's every adult in the world has a has a has a you know a mobile phone at this mm -hmm. point, and that begins to to change that very 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 quickly. And you bring in electricities, and and actually there is one technology that I think is really underappreciated for its role in development right now. The number one, of course, is is the smart the cell phone. But number two are cheap motorcycles. Hmm. Motorcycles just transforming the developing world because you don't have to build roads. All those roads, all those villages waiting forever for a road to be built in are now accessible with a cheap Chinese $300 motorcycle that can haul not just you and your family up and down, but the goods, you can move your produce in, you can move in equipment um, in, and you even can rent them as a moto taxi. Um, and they're, they're just suddenly penetrating everywhere that has been waiting for roads to be built in, in the mountains, the far distant rural areas. People don't realize the extent to which together the, with the phone and the motorcycle, basically the entire world is now penetrated, and and that has really accelerated development. Uh, this is actually a great 
point because I think at one time there was this thinking, uh, especially part of world where I came from, that you needed so many things before people could access technology. But it turns yeah. out that if you give someone even a old school Nokia 3310 phone, they are entrepreneurial, they make things work, which right. may be an interesting question. If you could airdrop some piece of technology to everyone on the planet, right, which would has a very good shot of make their lives better outside of a phone or outside of a motorcycle, uh, yeah. uh, which I don't know whether I'll trust myself with. Uh, uh, I'm a bad driver. But if you could add up yeah. some piece of technology to everybody, what what would you do? Well, 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 well the, the, the next answer right now is going to be AI. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with, with, the, with over communications over, over those phones and, and, you know, the, you know, to kind of jump forward a little bit in our, and it is, is that, you know, uh, we're going to have AI doctors and, an AI doctor is not as good as human doctors right now. Um, and it won't be as good as an AI plus human doctor. So that's the, the, the best is the human plus the AI together as a team. We've established that many, many times that the, that the AI plus human is better than either AI by themselves or human by themselves. Mm. However, even an AI doctor by itself is better than no doctor. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're gonna be having is now with AI, you'll be able to have the best teachers, the best tutors, the best doctors reaching everybody that can get a signal. And that is gonna be really, really powerful. So, so, so some of the, it's not the, it's not the elite that necessarily gonna benefit most from AI, even though it'll be expensive in the beginning, like all things. Um, and they'll have more access to it. The the people that will be changed the most by it are the same people who were changed the most by having a mobile phone, which was those who have the least. And so I always think of this as the haves and the have-laters. Hmm. Okay, so the rich subsidize technologies when they don't work and they're over expensive. And then they use them enough at the high prices to make them cheap where they really work well and they're affordable for everybody. And I think that's what's going to happen with AI. It'll take a decade. Mm -hmm. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It'll take a decade or more or maybe several decades for this to reach it. But that's where we're going is, is, is bringing AI so people who have very little can have an AI doctor, can have an AI tutor, can have an AI assistant. All right? That's... Incredible. So you're out in the little village and you don't have a, but you have a, you have an assistant. You have an AI assistant. You have an AI intern that's helping you. That's incredibly powerful. Um, uh, I think the challenge I think we have right now is there's so much doomer talk and pessimism around AI, a lot due to sci fi, you know, uh, Skynet yep. and, uh, uh, you know, insert a dystopian movie of choice, but also I think some of our own creation, right? Like, uh, we have a lot of folks from our world or policymakers who are convinced that AI will bring about the end of humanity. I am curious to how, if you had to change the discourse or if you had to change the narrative yeah. around AI and you had supreme power over humanity and mm. uh, how we think about things, what would you do? How would you change people's minds about AI? Well, I, I, I think the, I think there is something that's missing on from people like myself and this is the project i'm working on and that is is that we don't have very many pictures mm -hmm. of a world in the future that's teeming with ai and ubiquitous genetic engineering and constant monitoring that we want to live in and so it's really hard to 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 it's hard to imagine right now what that world looks like but if, and i think it's going to be Unless we do, I think it's going to be hard for people to be optimistic. And so we, we, we need to have some pictures, even if it's like a Star Trek kind of a picture, of a world in which there is embedded, ubiquitous, cheap AI everywhere and genetic engineering and all this other stuff. And it's a world that we kind of want to, we can't wait to get to. And so I think that's, um, I think we haven't yet been able to to describe that in, in enough detail. I can give you a little bits of it, which I just did, of you know having an AI doctor and stuff, but that's that's just a little corner of it. We need a full-fledged 
visions of of you know the Dina book, Neil Stevenson's Young Ladies Primer. We need more fleshed out visions that people can kind of work to and say, here, this is this is why I'm working in AI. I want to make this. Right now, people say, I want to work, I want to make Terminator. <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah. no, it's not going to work. Right. And so, um, so, so I think there is a, a, a vision, a, a vision, and there should be more than one um, scenarios of about what that world looks like. Um, I, I would say another thing that won't help is um, new technologies always have to be compared to what exists. Right. You always have to compare to what. So it's like. Yes, I mean, and I've said this for a long time. Of course, AI robo cars are going to kill people, but compared to what? Compared to humans, humans should not be allowed to drive. I mean, we would look at the, look at what all the stuff of humans. We say they should absolutely not be allowed to drive ever. So you always have to compare the new technologies to the existing technologies. Yes. Mercury fillings may have some slight little negative thing, but compared to what? Compared to cavities, this t- cavities are terrible. They're very, very disastrous for your overall health. And so um, we always have to compare these new technologies to what exists right now. So you have to do a fair appraisal. We tend to give a pass to whatever exists right now we don't hold it up to the same standards that we often apply to new technologies. And so um, so I think the precautionary principle is basically horrible, horrible, misguided idea. I call it the proactionary principle, which is that we kind of want to constantly test and measure the new things in a real way. So AI, I would say, one of the things about AI is let's measure actually um, what has happened so far with the AI that we have, what are the actual results? And, um, you know, how many people have actually died or let's take this one. How many people have actually lost a job because of AI? How many do you think it is? I think it may be one or two, mm-hmm. maybe one or two people, maybe a hundred people if, if it were generous, but there's no mass, there's no evidence of mass unemployment because of AI. It's all an imaginary speculation that's not rooted in any kind of evidence. So let's. So so I would say the first thing about AI. Let's look at actual evidence, like you know, academic, scholarly, scientific evidence of what is actually happening mm-hmm. versus imagining all the things that we could. Um, actually, I I wasn't going to go down this path, but since you brought this up. Obviously, you know, there's a very heated discourse at the moment, right? Like on many things about AI, obviously there's a job. If you look at the short term, replacing jobs, all the hate speech-based information. But then there's a lot of people who would say extinction level risks, FOOM, all of those scenarios. So if you were in a room with Eliezer Rutkowski right now, what would be the argument you would make to him about why AI won't kill us all? There are several. One of the most common tropes and the arguments for being afraid and wary of super intelligence is this idea of exponential increase. Well, let's look at the evidence. What is the evidence that the output of AI is increasing exponentially? Zero. There is no, it's not. Actually, what's increasing exponentially is all the resources for it, the compute, the number of chips. Those are all expanding exponentially in order to have a small increase in performance. Most of the most of the performances actually are plateauing. With so you, it's diminishing returns where you need more and more and more compute, exponentially more compute in order to make a fairly small difference. There is not an exponential. There's no Moore's law. In intelligence, mm-hmm. there's no evidence for that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. First of all, we don't even have very good metrics. Like, okay, is Chat GPT four how much smarter, better it is than is it, than it is a three point five? Is it ten times, a hundred times, a million times, two times? We don't even have any 
ideas and the only difference we have is is relating to human performance and relating to human performance they're plateauing in terms of the amount of input that they're having mm-hmm. in order to, in order to increase that a little bit the loss of a few percent they're they're having to have exponentially more compute so it's not it's the inverse of exponential compute so that would say that's the first thing is is that this idea that there's a runaway intelligence explosion is just a myth Oh yes, I. This is a topic we care deeply about, and I'm so happy you say this. I think there's so much more, which I'm sure you you know of. One is like I don't think there's any proof the scaling laws hold. I don't think uh, 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 there's any proof of foom. There, uh, uh, there's all these things we think are just really scary myths. But I want to kind of shift off AI because I want to talk about something where I'm kind of quite jealous of you, honestly. Uh, and I'm going to ask this question in a kind of a roundabout way, where. Uh, Patrick and John Collison, who I'm sure you know of or know, they said recently that some of the most beautiful things in the world, or maybe all the great institutions in the world, are results of people's passion projects. And uh, I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, when I look at your output, which is sort of an insufficient word to capture all the things that you've done, uh, (laughs) so much of that has such obvious passion embedded in it and yeah. i want to kind of get your thoughts on sort of your meta system of when how do you pick a project how many do you work on how are you mm-hmm. productive across so many of yeah. these things so walk us through the meta of kevin kelly before we kind of dive into some of these projects because i'm kind of jealous i'm like i can't even barely do my day job and here you're writing a book you're doing like a multi-year for not yeah, anything yeah. So walk us through the Kevin Kelly system for having such crazy amount of work going on. Yeah. So so, so one of the things, there's a couple of things. Um, one is, you know, I, I grew up without very much money. My parents didn't give me money to do any things. It was all my own. Um, I dropped out of college and I kind of signed up at that point for a life where I wouldn't have any money, but I have time. And I met it when I was traveling in Asia I met this older person who was traveling with a group kind of tour. I think they were hiking in Himalayas. They, I was carrying my own pack and they had porters and, you know, they're hired at porters and the whole guides. And he looked at me and he said, I'm really envious of you because you have all this time to spend here. And I have two days or three days, whatever it is. And it was like an epiphany for me. So here's this really rich guy saying, I envy you because you have time. And I realized that the time is that for me, time is the wealth. It's not money. It's, 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 and so having that kind of control over my time. And so I would do projects that had no economic merit. The vanishing Asia thing for 50 years, I worked on it. There's no economic model for that. There's no one, people weren't clamoring. We need. Vanishing Asia photograph. <laughs> it was, it was, right. it was just had a passion project. It was led entirely that. And so I, I lived as if I was a billionaire when I had like zero money. I was like, what would a billionaire do? Oh, what they do is they have time. It isn't that they have money, it's that they have control of their time. And so, so for me, it was always about, um, the, the, you know, leading with the, with the passion, um, having enough value and then doing things that were valuable picking ones that were valuable to other people. And at some point, Canon had an epiphany, and this was uh, wired. And the epiphany was, if, if you are successful to a certain amount of time where you're doing things that you like, other people like, that pay well, there's that's, not, that's actually not the epiphany. That's not the apex. People think that Holy Trinity is like, okay, things that I really enjoy doing, things that other people appreciate, things that I'm good at, if you get those three together, those like, that's golden. But there's actually a fourth level. And that fourth level is, is there anyone else who could do what you're doing? If Are you doing things that nobody else can do? And so I have inadvertently arrived at understanding that being the only, being working on things that people, no one else is kind of really interested in at that time, Maybe no one else understands, or no one else can do that. That is really the spot that you want to be. That's how you can become productive because 
there isn't anyone else. You can kind of take your time. You can kind of spend there and and not have to be rushing quickly because you're by yourself. And so this is a little bit of summary for the bit of advice I have, which is don't aim to be the best, aim to be the only. That understanding, so, so one of the questions I ask myself when I have this, when I'm thinking about what I'm going to do is, would anybody else do this? Could could I imagine someone else doing it? Because if the answer is yes, then I'm going to avoid it. And I wanted to work on something that no one else is doing. And one of the ways I do that, by the way, is I talk about my ideas. I try to give my ideas away all the time. I'm constantly, I'm talking about the, what I'm thinking about doing, what's a good idea, and the hopes that someone else will take it. Because if I've tried to give away an idea for five years, then I know that nobody else, and now if I still think it's a good idea, then I know, it's like I've been trying to give this away idea, so now I can work on it at my own pace and do my own thing because, because no one else is really going to do it. Um, okay, and all right, so how... Walk me through then your what Tyler Coven would call the production function, right? Which is the your weekly rhythm. How often do you write? When do you write? How, yeah. How do you split your time between these projects? Like some, for example, some writers I know have multiple things going on because yeah. if they get stuck, they move on. Others are all in on one thing. So walk us through the how a week looks like for you. Yeah, I I, I don't like to write. I avoid writing as much as I can. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly painful. I, I take on deadlines and now and then to force me to write. So I write in order to figure out things. I'm working on a piece right now, and I'll, and I'll tell you what it is because I'm hoping to give it away. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm working on a piece called Latent Spaces, and it's a different take on AI. It's this idea that latent spaces may be a new medium. Latent space is what the models of AI are with, with interior inside the models of AI are latent spaces. And, and I'm suggesting that those latent spaces themselves may be a new media more than just being able to, you know, ask it questions, have it queries that, that you might be able to play with the latent spaces that are common between, well, we don't know common between models or uh, you know, maybe transforming one latent space to another latent space. So for me, there, there, this idea of kind of looking at AI in a completely different way, in a systematic way, in the way kind of, you know, like um, Stephen Wolfram kind of explored um, mm -hmm. CAs mm -hmm. and looked at commentary, all the possible CAs to get an idea of that system. I'm saying there's something happening with latent spaces in, um, in AI. And so... I well, I'll kind of noodle around, but I'll I'll pitch that as a story in order to force me to have a deadline, in order to force me to write because I don't like to write because it's, it's thinking it's like hard it's like I don't know what that is I write one sentence and I realize I have no idea what I'm talking about I got to do some more interviews and so that's a lot of work and so I kind of I need to have a deadline to kind of force me to do that really hard thinking so um so I don't so. The, my writing every day are is 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 more in um, communication, but I don't. I'm not, I'm not a, I don't have a daily habit of writing. I have a daily habit of making art, mm -hmm. and I have a daily habit of reading. And I'll be reading a lot of papers as best I can to um, to kind of give me some ideas about this, um, and um, and then I do presentations. So my livelihood is giving talks in Asia. That's my, particularly China. So I'm working on another talk in China right now. Mm -hmm. And um, so I will be kind of working in the background about developing these talks. And um, so the short answer is I don't have, I'm not a routine person. I don't have routines okay, about right. doing things every day. Um, you know, I did a book. And so for two months I did, podcasts eight hours a day for two months i was doing nothing else during that time um i'm working on some art now so for this past week i've been doing art most of the afternoons um working on this this thing this crazy thing it's a passion project 
And um, and then, you know, next week I'll be, I do have a couple talks and I'll be working on the talks, kind of developing those, thinking it out. So, so I, I ha I'm much more project oriented mm -hmm. in my life and my approach. I like to do little projects, working on things. I have another book. So I'll take some time out. I'll work on it a week, work on a focus on a project. And then I go somewhere else. You know, in between, I have recommendo. So like every week, there's a two suggestions for recommendo. I do a podcast for cool tools weekly, but we'll do it every, we'll do them once a month, batch them up. So, so, so my, so I don't have a daily or even weekly ritual. I have projects that I move from um, bit by bit. You know, it gives me hope <laughs> <laughs> because I am, Shriram is a creature of habit. He likes his things in a specific place. He, uh, he does the exact same thing every day. He's a creature of routine. Okay. Even the foods he eats. No, no, no. Yeah. Very, very, you know, I, and I look at him and I am the crazy person because <laughs> I can't even eat the same dinner twice in a row. <laughs> <laughs> and so looking at you, I'm just grinning because I'm like, okay, there's hope for me. No, not, not all is love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that is true. I do. I am very particular about things and I get very grumpy and unpleasant to be around when something is amiss. And uh, yeah, Arthi has kind of seen that sadly, I would say. Okay, <laughs> on, but switching topics at this moment. Um, I think at the top of the show, I kind of mentioned this amazing, amazing book, which uh, yeah. which if I, if I believe you turned 60, 68 and you were writing down yeah. advice and you had this yeah. post and then you were like, hey, let's make the book. And this is, I can't recommend this book highly, highly enough. And I'm curious, sir, um, you're obviously well-known for so many pieces of writing, 1,000 True Fans, uh, you have a lot of other classic pieces of work. What, from this book, which is kind of like a book of aphorisms, advice, etc., some profound, uh, some funny, yeah. uh, all interesting, what has surprised you in terms of people coming up to you or sending you an email yeah. or reacting, where you're like, huh, I did not know that was going to connect in a way that it maybe did. Yeah, yeah. So, so let me just, um, just for the sake of the audience, let me just say the name of the, the book, which is Excellent Advice for a Living. Mm -hmm. And the subtitle is Wisdom I Wish I'd Known Earlier. And it contains nothing more, nothing less um, than around 450 little aphorisms. So it's a very easy read. It's basically the Bible without any stories. Okay? There's no stories. I, I, so... Normally, the vice books, there'll be lots and lots of stories because that's a very effective way to tell things. And I decided to cut out the stories and just give you the punchline. And I did that um, with 450. Many of them are kind of channeling the ancient, ancient, you know, the Lao Tzu's and the Greek Stoics and the biblical prophets. Um, and others are just entirely new. So... Um, there's a little bit of, of, of both in there, and they're, and, and they're kind of almost like tweets. Very, very compressed is how I thought of them. These are kind of a little compressed, and you can kind of munch over them, mull over them, and unpack them yourself. So um, the thing that surprised me is that people's there's almost no overlap between people's favorites. Hmm. That that was the light. Is like there there is no common general favorite of, of everybody. I thought there would be. I thought the couple would kind of emerge as commonly appreciated, but no, there's everybody, it's very individualistic. Everybody's favorites are going to be brand new to me. I mean, that no one else has really said that they were their favorites. And so um, that was a surprise, was kind of how, how there wasn't any emergent favorites out of them. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Um, okay, so I know we have a few minutes left. I want to ask you before we go to the end. Um, obviously, you've been playing a lot with the AI. Um, yeah. And, but you're sort of the prototypical nerd geek collecting tools. Uh, you know, I kind of see you in sort of, you know, obviously, you're kind of the pantheon of people like Stuart Brand. What are you playing with now technologically outside of AI that you're like, you should go check out this site, this app, download it, install it, tinker with it, open it up? Give us a few. <laughs> You said outside of AI. Outside said. of AI. 
or maybe yeah. you know it's not it's not you know it's not just say mid journey or something it's like something which yeah, yeah. maybe out of the mainstream related to ai with this ai but not mid journey is the new adobe firefly mm-hmm. capabilities that blew that i was been having fun playing around with so you can kind of take text and uh what's the word i want you can texture text in a very very powerful way that was um mid journey those are notoriously bad with text but 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 this is just text only for adobe um outside of ai there's still something important in what i call the mirror world in the world of the vr the ar happening you know the the, the recent things that zuckerberg demoed with yeah. their their avatar um, there, you know, there, there, that's not dead yet. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot that's happening. Um, I saw some of the stuff at Google with their, their Starlight, um, versions of immersive mm-hmm. presence without having to wear any goggles at all. So, um, we're having this Zoom right now, but we could be having it in a way mm-hmm. that, you're in three dimensions and I'm not wearing anything at all. It's incredibly powerful, full scale presence. So, so, so I, so, so, so there are little experiments and things there that I think are still many, many years away from being, um, good enough to, to, to be that smartphone moment, but they're, they're, they're really on, they're on their way and we shouldn't ignore that because that, that is, that is still happening. Wow, that's great. Um, I think we have a minute or so left. I wanted to ask you one question. You know, I was reading your book, and uh, you, you know, all of these for me. When I read your book, it's a little bit of this time for introspection uh-huh. on what I should be doing, what I've been doing, what I'm thinking about right now. And one of the things that's like always top of mind for me and Sriram, we are relatively new parents. Uh, our kids are small. Uh, we just moved and packed up our bags and moved to London. It's like a new adventure for us and we're trying to figure it out. So I guess I wanted to ask you, what advice do you have for parents, for new parents, parents just about getting started? Kind of a trite one, but very important to me was, um, you know, probably spend half as much money on your kids as you might think and twice as much time. They, mm-hmm. the, the, the time that you give them is just so valuable to them. They they just will absorb it, and that's really what they all calculate and remember. The other thing that that I was very late in understanding, and I wish I'd known earlier, was this idea and the idea and the value of um, rituals, small rituals. Mm-hmm. So I would say make as many rituals for your kids as you can, and they a ritual is anything you do three times in a row. It's a ritual. So whether it's making pancakes every Sunday morning or you have a certain thing you do at the beginning of your birthday or you do something every season or you have a place you go to once a year or, you know, in the morning, every time that they get a grade, you do something, a good grade, you do something. And what it is, it's like the entire world, as they grow up, the entire world could be very uncertain or weird or unstable or whatever it is. But the fact that you make pancakes on Sunday morning is like that is so powerful to them. They can they can come back to that. They can they can rely on that. So you have these little rituals, and those rituals become ever more important, even though they're frivolous and they're maybe meaningless in some senses. They they accrue meaning by just being repeated so often. And so when they get really older, my kids are just the few little rituals we have, they just love them. They just were so foundational to them. And I didn't realize how important they would become or I would have done more of them. So my advice is do more of them right now. Uh, I love it. I mean, we're recording this on Friday evening in London and Friday evening is a bunch of rituals, uh, including video game time with our four-year-old who maybe two good video games per age. Um, uh, and we make popcorn. Oh, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Whatever it is, it's just, it's just little tiny things that you do on a regular basis and you're consistent and that consistency is what they rest on. Uh, uh, Kevin, uh, 
this has been such a true pleasure and delight and uh you are you know truly no one can do what you do you're one of a kind in so many so many ways thank you for the book which i can't recommend enough excellent advice for living wisdom and wish i known earlier it's amazing it's a easy read but it's profound It'll have an impact i swear and thank you for everything that you do uh you're so generous with your time and everything you do so this was such a pleasure thank you kevin it was really a lot of fun i enjoyed um having this chance to be with you guys to meet you a little bit more than i have and um thank you for taking time with me i appreciate it thank you so much thank you thank you